Hello, I'm Daniel Simpson, the host of Ancient Futures. And if you're hearing this, you're listening to a preview of an archived podcast. For the full conversation, go to ancientfutures.substack.com. The link is in the show notes and become a paid subscriber. Or you can also sign up for a free seven day trial with no obligation. If you already subscribe, however, you have access to everything via the website um, where you can go to your account page to set up a feed to your favourite podcast app. Just follow the instructions at ancientfutures.substack.com forward slash account. Now, everything is free at the time of release, so it's also possible to subscribe without any charge to get the latest episodes direct to your inbox, along with other interviews and things that I write. All of that does take time to produce, though, so while it's a labour of love, subscriber donations do help make it sustainable. But if you're not in a position to pay, just send me a message and we'll work something out. For now, on with the preview. Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we seek a middle way between the extremes of all or nothing. Um, today I'm joined by Christopher Miller, who's a professor of yoga and Jain studies, about which more soon. Um, however, he's also a yoga practitioner, and his work looks in detail at modern forms of practice that go beyond postures. Uh, his new book is called Embodying Transnational Yoga, and it focuses on other sorts of body discipline, eating, singing and breathing, and uh, looks at how some of these practices get adapted to serve new priorities. Uh, now, that raises some questions about whether that process can be harmful sometimes, um, as well as the extent to which harm is an inevitable part of life that can only be minimised rather than eradicated. Uh, along the way to wrestling with that question, uh, we also explore a number of others. Um, for example, uh, um, how Jains perfect the precept of non-harming and in the process influence yoga. Um, also, whether it's better to promote being vegan or to eat fewer animal products. <laughs> Although we do, of course, leave the door open to both. Um, similarly, um, whether the harmonium is a, an Indian instrument for kirtan practice or from the West, or again, maybe a bit of both. Um, and at the same time, whether a ukulele can raise kundalini. Uh, now, there are all sorts of other things that uh, I don't really have time to summarise now. I hope you're going to keep listening and find out. But uh, what we really drill down into at the end is whether critical thinking can complement the practice of yoga um, to lead to greater insight and uh, um, without giving away too many secrets um, we do reach that conclusion uh, so if you're curious to find out more about Chris he teaches online at the Ari Hunter Institute among other places uh, and you can find out more uh, via his Instagram handle at the yoga professor um, he's based in Switzerland uh, where I'll also be teaching a retreat next year in July uh, so you can find out more about that and uh, also my online courses at truthofyoga.com also if you'd like to support the podcast as a subscriber um, you can visit ancientfutures.substack.com uh, for now though let's uh, dive deep into ethical quandaries with Christopher Miller So, Chris, welcome. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. I'm happy to be here. 
thank you for coming and uh, also thank you for sharing a copy of your book with me um embodying transnational yoga is the title and we're going to get into the subtitle i think uh, a little bit more the eating the singing and the breathing dimensions of yoga um but also, uh, you know, really wanted to just say congratulations. Yeah, producing a book is no small feat. So well done. Thank you very much. Yes, it was a, a long labor of love, as we say. And uh, yeah. I'm happy to be here the day after we did the book launch yesterday at SOAS. And you were there. And I'm very happy to be here to discuss it more with you. You can say whatever you want. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I should probably say off the bat that I'll, I'll I'll lower the tone somewhat from the the scholarly heights um, of your discussion with Lara and uh, with Jackie and some of the attendees last night. Um, I really want to just go back to basics to start with and uh, talk a little bit about how you got into yoga in the first place. Um, it sounded like it was something you'd come to in your 20s um, and that it, you know, through yoga practice, you'd quite quickly been interested in yoga study. And uh, I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit how that happened. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, it's a very personal story, as I'm sure yoga is for you, I know, and 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 so for so many other people who come to yoga, and it's in the title of my book, this transformation, right? There's a certain transformation or experience you have that keeps you coming back for more, whatever that is, and it's different in all these yoga communities. But, you know, for me, uh, in my early 20s, after I graduated from college, I was making a transition into being an accountant. Um, I'm a CPA as well. And as I was making that transition, I had to support myself somehow financially. Uh, I wasn't able to do that yet with yoga. So I didn't even really know what yoga was at the time. And what I did during that time is I was actually working on the California wildfires. And so I write about this in the preface to the book to say, like, this is kind of what brings me into the world of samsara and suffering in, yeah. uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, I was on these wildfires in California, which we know are getting worse and worse. And I, I worked just grueling hours, backbreaking labor alongside California inmates who were out there, you know, serving their time and yeah, it was really, you know, really difficult work. And so you're actually a firefighter, were you? Or? I was I was a part of the logistical support team, so I never actually became a firefighter. Um, I, I was more so assisting those who were fighting the fire with setting wow. up the base camps. So I would follow them around basically with our company and that I was working for, and we provided the logistical support. So we would we would set up the uh, the huge tents that they would sleep in, set up their air conditioning for them, uh, provide the the food tents, you know, all these kinds of things that they needed to be able to camp out, so to speak, uh, if you want to call it that. And so we were moving uh, with them from, from place to place, location to location, you know, up in the mountains in California where the fires are burning and raging. And um, very difficult, as you can imagine, it's very hot. We weren't eating, we didn't sleep. And this, I, you know, this left its mark on me. It made it, it, it just, you know, I had a heightened sense of anxiety, you could say, and, and um, the, all the things that happen when you go through an experience like that uh, over and over again. So Having gone through that, um, I, and, and also having scoliosis, as a lot of yoga practitioners do, I write about that in the preface of the book as well. Uh, I was really searching for some kind of relief, and I was a surfer. And at the time when I was surfing in my mid twenties in in Southern California, I met my buddy Ryan, my surfing buddy Ryan. A little did I know, Ryan was going to be he and his brother Derek were going to be the founders of Yoga Glow, which we both probably know. Oh wow! And okay. I just happened to run into him when I was out in the water surfing. You know, we're having a good time, 
Um, and so that became a real entry point for me because what Ryan said to me out on the water one day had nothing to do with the fires or anything like that. But he said, you know, you got to try yoga. It'll make your surfing so much better. And you just got to try yoga. You know, so he was kind of proselytizing to me about yoga. So my first yoga class was actually at Yoga Glow uh, with Joe Tastula, who some may know yoga teacher. I actually did a teacher training with Joe earlier this year. So. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic yeah. yeah it's a small world of yoga right even there's so many of us and joe's class just gave me that well that yoga glow i mean i was just blissed out after that that first yoga class uh you know i, was, I remember going into my first downward dog and joe's like no you gotta go like this and all that and after i was done i was just i was sold i was like okay this is the thing that's that's gonna uh provide that relief i had been looking for that peace of mind for so long and uh, so that's really how my entry point into yoga started yeah. and was that how you got to know chris chris chapel because he was teaching for yoga glow as well wasn't he he was yes and so uh, i had already taken an undergraduate class with chris at the university on 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 indic tradition so it wasn't on mm -hmm. yoga but of course yoga was mentioned in there jane tradition was mentioned in there and that class had a profound impact on me and so by some you know kind of karmic confluence Chris was also at the time friends with Derek and Ryan at Yoga Glow, was invited to come teach at Yoga Glow. So this is a few years after I had graduated. Um, I, and, and, I, and I reconnected with Chris when he was teaching Patanjali's Yoga Sutra at Yoga Glow during this whole time, right, um, when all this is happening. So around the same time, I'm reconnecting with Chris Chapel there. We're going and listening to his weekly video discourses at Yoga Glow. And I, for the first time, like so many people, I'm like, oh, there's more to this than just the asanas? Though there's some <laughs> philosophy behind this. And so that was my initial entry point into studying uh, with Chris and with whom I eventually also did a two-year yoga teacher training based on his training at his ashram, which is the subject of the first chapter of the book. So we went, we did a two-year yoga teacher training where we were doing all the practices that I described there in the book, eating, singing, breathing, also, of course, asana and other things like that, meditation. But that was how I, I started to study with Chris. And was that prior to him setting up the, uh, the master's program in yoga studies at LMU? That was prior to Chris setting up the master's studies program at LMU, yes. So it was probably... Oh, Two or three years before it started, uh, we did this training with Chris at his separate yoga and meditation center, which was mm -hmm. in Santa Monica, California. Exactly. Because I actually went to see Chris um, a bit little more than 10 years ago when you know, SOAS had just got up and running. And I was really excited about you know, the prospect of studying yoga academically and i hadn't actually heard of the soas program at that time so i went to la met with chris and he told me about you at that time and explaining how you were you know researching the confluence of surfing and samadhi and uh, i was excited i thought this is you know a, a sort of whole new field of opportunity for a slightly you know directionless ex-journalist drifting um, maybe i could catch a wave of applying a little bit of intellectual rigor to my interest in yoga so um yeah he was a very engaged and engaging person to talk to about that subject eventually though he said there is this other program in london you might want to look into if you haven't got what it takes to pay all the fees to, to come and be a student in california which uh, i didn't so that's how I ended up. So, so expensive, right? Uh, yeah. To live in Los Angeles and, and everything. So yeah, I can definitely, and I know that you and I share this background as well of, of 
as practitioners at times being in India for various, yes. you know, trainings or yoga or whatever. And then part of my experience in that was that I took what you see behind me, my surfboard with me <laughs> to India. Now I'm a surf traveler because I'm in Zurich, right? I'm landlocked. But um, I took that, I took, I, I went with my surfboard to India and I met a group in the forest there in Puri in Orissa of people who called themselves surfing yogis. And awesome. that was the, that was, you know, when I did my master's thesis, I was kind of exploring the confluence of yoga philosophy and tantric philosophy and being in the elements and, uh, and surfing in India with these surfing yogis. So it was like a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of ethnography. And uh, that was prior, of course, to the yoga studies program that was there as well. But that was that was what I was exploring. And Chris actually came. Uh, he was in India for his research and we met up and uh, he was body surfing. I was surfing at, at, a, at, a, at a small river mouth in uh, in Orissa and just incredible waves. I mean, as you know, not too many people go into the ocean in India. Right? Yeah. I mean, it's very dangerous there. And I, in fact, I've experienced uh, myself some of the most dangerous waves in India because it's just it's so pounding it's it's incredible power there um, but there's also like this this uh, uh, mystical appeal of being surfing on the beach in India and just being on the beach in India that drew me back for more over and over again so that became this initial research interest of mine which I am still interested in I haven't been able to go back uh, as much due to a lot of family obligations and things but surfing in India is fantastic yeah uh, and yoga, of course. I did think, uh, if I remember rightly, that I'd seen you surfing in Switzerland even these days as a sort of uh, a wave pooled. Is that right? Yeah, they have the Alaya Bay in in uh, in Valleys. So I, yeah. I sometimes it's about a three hour train ride from here. I can take my board with me or go even without. They have tons there. And you can surf the Alps, so to speak. <laughs> I know that uh, a, a mutual contact of ours, I believe it's Michaela in, in Ticino. Yes. about going recently too. So all the yogis here in Switzerland are even starting to get the surfing bug. <laughs> you, you're not tempted by snowboarding though? or is That as that... well. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. I go snowboarding now as well. Yeah. 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 yeah so. Lots of crossover there too. I mean, I haven't done that in a long time, but that was one of my first ideas about sort of how yoga would improve my sporting endeavors was that getting into postural yoga would really help me to tune into, you know, picking a line out on the mountain and not wiping out, which I used to do a little too often. It certainly does. Yeah. So the postural yoga has so many benefits. And I, I was writing an article a while back. Uh, it's somewhere on the internet. I have to find it about the confluence of surfing and yoga in Hawaii with people like Jerry Lopez who were on the North shore of Hawaii, you know, meditating, doing all this Zen stuff during the counterculture, uh, postural yoga. And Jerry Lopez, of course, still does all this stuff. Uh, you know, Mr. Pipeline surfing these massive waves, but when he's on the sidelines, he's practicing yoga. And I was so intrigued by this confluence. And I felt like it was this natural confluence. Like if you're a surfer, of course you're a yogi. And if you, you know, it helps with all the, the concentration and body control that's required when you're out in these really critical situations, being able to control your breath. And so, yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, I hope you get to pick up that thread again, and especially while some of those old timers are still around to talk to. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. I have to go to Oregon now. So Jerry Lopez is now famously snowboarding, right? And he's <laughs> snowboarding in, in, in Oregon where he lives now and, and surfing on the river waves. So the story goes on. It would be a fascinating research project. 
Well, that's actually very, um, I guess, harmonious with the the theme of what you're writing about, this kind of ripple effect of um, the practices being in transformation as the locations change and then also as the objectives of the practitioners change. And yoga, therefore, is is in constant flux, in evolution. And uh, that seemed to be the sort of, I guess, underlying connectivity between the three different case studies that you focus on in the book. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about what led you to focus on that dimension? Yes, absolutely. So there's three main chapters in the book. Uh, the first one's about yogic diet, how yogis eat. The second one is about music, kirtan, right? And the third one is about pranayama. So what I'm really trying to do here is show how these practices move across the world into particular places where I was trained or inspired by to train Uh, and how they transform when they do that. So how do yogic dietary practices change when they end up in Long Island, New York, is what happens in chapter one at Yoga Anand Ashram, right? Um, Which is the the ashram where Chris Chappell studied for 12 years and became kind of naturally my first field site. It was a lot of archival research and speaking with students who had trained there and during, particularly during the counterculture, which is a really fascinating time. Uh, again, that intersects with surfing and all this stuff with Jerry Lopez. So that became my first site. And one of the main ways that they expressed their yogic identity and practice was through a commitment to ahimsa. And for them, that meant vegetarianism and opening a vegetarian restaurant. And so in this chapter, what I decided to do was Instead of focusing on asana, there's so much research on asana, which is great, and I teach it in class, but I wanted to talk about something different, right? So Mm. they're practicing asana there, but I wanted to show how uh, really culturally what it meant to open up a vegetarian restaurant during the counterculture, during what's known as counter cuisine. There's all these restaurants opening all over the United States, including at this ashram, and they're doing it as not just as an expression of food justice, you know, against environmental harms of eating um, anything that comes from animals or the the harm against the animals, which is a broader concern in the counterculture. But they're also doing it as a direct and 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 uh, expression of Patanjali's ahimsa, right? So this chapter shows how you can still practice ahimsa on Long Island, New York, in this very particular way by by really engaging with the counterculture and what the counterculture is doing. So that's chapter one. Uh, Could I just pop in there? I was very, very interested to see that, um, if I understood correctly, not only um, some of the people who were involved at the ashram, but even the guru herself were not 100% vegetarian. So it was a case of causing a bit less harm, but not necessarily eradicating completely. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so that was one of the things that came up uh, in my research was that there were some students. So Gurani Anjali is the the female guru of this ashram. Um, She promoted vegetarianism to the students. And during certain times, for example, like everybody would just practice vegetarianism. But when I started talking to people at the ashram, there were some people who were fully committed and are still vegetarian to this day. Chris Chapel, for example, yeah. is one of the people. And then there were other students who who said, you know, sometimes I practiced it, sometimes I didn't. It was a kind of periodic reflection on ahimsa. Uh, and some people just just didn't, didn't simply didn't practice it. So when you start doing the ethnographic work, you start to realize that um, even Gurani Anjali was, uh, you know, people told me was at times vegetarian, but coming from Bengal where not everyone a lot of fish eating, <laughs> fish eating right? Um, was not strictly vegetarian. 
um, herself. So it was seen as as somehow uh, a way of, at least for a partial period of time, taking on some kind of ascetic practice as a commitment to to uh, to ahimsa, and also as students conveyed, whoever did it, even if they didn't remain vegetarian, it still it still opened up their eyes to uh, the manifold harms of not being vegetarian, of of eating animals, and so on. So uh, yeah, there was a full range, a full spectrum of of responses, so to speak, uh, on the ground as it was happening on the ground. And I wonder how that sat with you as somebody who has become, you know, very vocal and active on on this particular issue, um, having yourself become a vegan and uh, keen to promote that as a lifestyle decision. Um, and uh, I wonder, how, you know, how that jives, that sort of moderate approach, the watering down, the sort of a bit less harm rather than 100% non-harm. Yeah, I mean, I th- I think you know, I I became vegan through my through my Jane studies, which we can talk about Jane mm. too if you want. Um, so I was vegetarian as a result of studying with Chris uh, in the two year teacher training and reading Gurani Anjali's writings about ahimsa and stuff like that. I decided to go full vegetarian at the time. So this is the ten years ago, like as you say, when you were interacting with him a little bit before that. Um, and and was just okay with that, and and never really even thought about veganism or anything like that and then when i was studying and preparing courses about five years ago or four years ago now i guess it was for a, for a course in Jain studies which of course emphasizes ahimsa more than most traditions would um that was when i decided in my interactions with the Jane vegan initiative and, and Jane vegans to go to go fully vegan now when i was at the time i was doing my research and i had done it already in my dissertation research i had already kind of spoken to people who realized that uh, who who made me realize that not everyone was vegetarian and at first it was a it was a shock to me i was surprised and and i think as most people are when they get into their tradition more and more they start to see things that they don't want to see right uh, yes. but i couldn't unsee it you can't unsee it once you see it and um yeah so i was a little bit disappointed because you think you're practicing the pure and most holy and highest tradition no matter what tradition you're in that often happens to people right um, and then you have to kind of start admitting to yourself that that not the world as you had perceived it as being a perfect demonstration of ahimsa or whatever uh, isn't that. And and so yeah, it, it first it, it had to settle in. I had to come to a point of acceptance that it just wasn't the way I thought it was. Um, although there were of course people who did, um, and and now I'm the one trying to convince them. And I say them, all the countercultural vegetarians. No, you got to be vegan now too. You know, it, uh, so it's it's kind of a funny thing that 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 I'm the one now trying to convince them after they convinced me. <laughs> I also wonder how it sort of lands with you to be in India, where the, the, the fullest expression of pure vegetarian is maximum cow products. Yeah, this is something that we we discuss a lot in the Jain community, and that is. Uh, that there's manifold harms connected with dairy and most Jains are just vegetarian, right? They're not vegan. And so there's so much, as you know, in India, as well as in the diaspora, there's so much uh, dairy in all of the things that, that are floating around. So I'm in a, I would say I'm in a constant um, conversation of advocacy and I'm actually going to be making a presentation later this week at the AAR in, in San Antonio about the, the ongoing debate within the Jain community specifically between, you know, the 
especially in India, advocating hard for dairy. Like you can't give this up. It's a cultural tradition. Uh, and then the Jane vegans, mostly in the diaspora, mostly young, who are saying, no, we have to be vegan for climate change and the animals and all these things like this. It's a constant debate. Uh, and so I'm actually writing a chapter about it right now, and I'm going to be presenting it at the AAR to kind of show the arguments that are made on both sides. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I look forward to to hearing more about that because I think, you know, in the end, you know, there is always dialogue and um tempting as it can be to to see the you know the clear merits of one position um and to therefore imagine that it's almost a an unarguable point that everybody else should sign up to it um not everybody agrees and uh i think there needs to be some space for that disagreement to to be in you know creative tension and to 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 allow each side to 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 learn a little bit from the other and perhaps to see the merits of yeah as i guess i started out on this line of inquiry um less harm still better than more harm um and uh, even if it's still not you know ultimately no harm thanks for tuning in to this preview uh, to continue listening and to get access to all archived episodes along with other perks visit ancientfutures.substack.com